you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We turn our attention now to COVID-19, the very latest on the pandemic, on vaccination, on where we stand on cases with Huntington Hospital's Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. She's Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington. Dr. Schreiner, a very good Monday to you. Hope you had a nice Halloween weekend. I did, Larry. I'm glad you did, too. Thanks. You gave out some candy to the kids? No, we didn't do that. We're not quite quite there yet, but we had some nice little kids coming up and down the street in some fantastic costumes, including several plague doctors, which I thought was kind of interesting. That That is interesting. So do you take that as a positive, as an infectious disease specialist? Yeah, I have a great fondness for Guy de Choliac, who was a famous physician in the, four, in the 15th century, and and uh, it was kind of a nice homage to infectious disease doctors back in the plague. That's nice. As long as it's not demon-possessed or zombie doctors, I'm sure that's that's nice. Well, let's talk about uh, the FDA is delaying its decision on use of the Moderna vaccine for adolescents. This was announced by Moderna itself, saying the FDA wants additional evaluation of the risk of myocarditis, particularly among young males. Your thoughts about that, and what might they be doing to do that further study? Well, I think what we're seeing here, Larry, is a very good move on the part of the FDA in being extra cautious in assessing the vaccines for children uh, and for young adults. And I think that that should be reassuring to parents who might be struggling with that decision right now. And I certainly understand that. It's important to remember that, um, you know, that more than many, many millions of people have now received the mRNA vaccines. Uh, and it's been very, very safe, and it is very safe in children and in young adults. Um, the uh, current concern is with the very slight and very rare incidence of myocarditis post-vaccination. Uh, that has to be balanced against the very real and quite common risk of myocarditis in the setting of acute COVID disease. And it's, that's really the most important thing to remember, that yes, uh, this can happen. It's an inflammation of the heart uh, but it's extremely rare. It can occur with other viral diseases and it can occur with other vaccines, measles and things like that. It's not an uncommon observation post-vaccination. And so I think Moderna and Pfizer and the FDA are being very, very careful because I think they understand that this is going to be a bit of a leap for many parents to go ahead and, and take their kids down to get vaccinated. Uh, for young adults, again, there may be a slight increased risk of this because their immune systems are a little more robust. 
and we don't see it very commonly among adults. But it's very rare. And again, myocarditis is a very common manifestation of severe COVID disease and can be debilitating and life-threatening. Now, why wouldn't they consider giving it to um, young women and girls? Because as my understanding is, the, the even the low myocarditis risk is largely with males. So why wouldn't they just say it's okay for girls to get it? Well, I just think this is the FDA uh, being very cautious. And again, I think that they understand uh, that it's going to be um, a decision for, you know, these are young adults, so they can, some of these folks can make the decision themselves if they're over 18. But uh, I think they want to be very cautious so that parents feel comfortable that these have been well studied. Um, and I think that that's kind of why they're doing it. Uh, myocarditis can occur in females and males. It's more common in males. We don't quite understand why that is. Uh, but um, but it is quite common in the setting of, of COVID-19. And so I think that really you have to, it gets a lot of attention because it is a reported uh, adverse event from uh, from the vaccines themselves, but very, very, very rare. And um, again, the rarity of myocarditis in the setting of COVID is not a rarity at all. It's quite common. And so that's why we think on balance Uh, for young people, male or female, that these vaccines are very safe and will protect them. The L.A. County Department of Public Health uh, announced that unvaccinated teenagers are more likely to test positive for COVID-19 than unvaccinated adults in L.A. County. Do you attribute this all to just the social practices within those age groups, or is there perhaps something more going on? I think that's probably the large, largest impact and factor that's driving this. Um, again, you can see what's happening now is that the virus is just seeking out unvaccinated populations. It doesn't really care what age they are. It's just trying to find a place to replicate. And so, again, in our hospital, we have this kind of low-grade sort of chronic admission. You can see that throughout L.A. County where we really haven't gotten down into the super low numbers that we did back in June. And that's because the virus is moving through the population looking for people that aren't immune. And so, and it, and it gets them. Um, you know, the vast majority right now, I think everybody that's in Huntington Hospital right now uh, that has COVID is unvaccinated. And so, um, you know, this is a real concern. And in young people, they socialize a lot. We're seeing sports. Um, you mentioned all the football games that are going on. Terrific things for young people. It's a really great activity. We're glad we're able to reinstate that. But all the more reason for those young people to get vaccinated and protect them. And what, to what degree are you concerned as temperatures cool, and particularly with holiday gatherings, people spending more time indoors? Do you, you anticipate that we're going to see um, any kind of a surge driven by unvaccinated party goers or family gathering goers? I think we will, Larry. I think that's just a given. Um, You know, we know there's a little bit of a seasonality with these viruses. They tend to be a little more robust in colder temperatures, and so they stick around for longer. Uh, Cold air may suspend infected aerosolized particles a little bit differently um, uh, than warmer uh, air. Cold air is drier, and so there may be some more possibility of spreading the virus that way. But the more important thing is just people coming together for very important holidays in our culture and and wanting to be together. And I think the, the push for that is so strong because we've really been deprived of that for the last couple of years. So we want people to be cautious. Please get vaccinated. Please, if you're not vaccinated, take appropriate precautions. Wear masks when you're around, especially immunocompromised or elderly people. Uh, get tested. We have some pretty good rapid tests now that are pretty available, even on Amazon. And uh, they're not the best tests in the world, but they're pretty good. 
And so just really think about when you're getting together, who's vulnerable in that population? Who do I not want to give this disease to? And do everything you can to prevent it. And then enjoy your holiday. We're talking with Huntington Hospital's Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. She directs infectious disease and prevention for Huntington Hospital. If you have questions for her, you can email them to us. Please include your location and your first name at atcomments at kpcc.org. You can also call us at 866-893-KPCC. Can we just check in again on the rapid tests uh, that people might be using, you know, immediately before they go to a party or something like that? To what degree are they accurate? They're getting better. They're somewhere between, depending on the type, somewhere between 75 and 86 percent. They're good at picking up people who are symptomatic. So if you have sniffles or a sore throat or uh, that sort of thing, first of all, you might really want to go ahead and get a real test to make sure, especially if you're going to be around other people. But they're pretty good at picking up symptomatic people. Asymptomatic people are not as accurate, but they're, they're okay. Um, again, they don't take the place of a nasopharyngeal uh, PCR, but they're, they're fairly good for sort of large screenings. Um, and they need, usually a, there's a two-part test, so you test yourself once, and then two or three days later you test yourself again. That's the Binex one that's uh, widely available from Abbott, I believe. So, so those are uh, good options, and, and the Biden administration has recognized the importance of testing. You remember, Larry, back two years ago, we just were struggling to get people tested. We had not very little in the way of testing. So I think we're seeing this part of the mitigation against the pandemic really improving, where testing is becoming easier, more accurate, cheaper, more accessible, and will be part of a tool that we use to help control the disease. So I'm hoping that other kinds of modalities – uh, other kinds of breath tests, things like that, that <clears throat> that may be uh, evolving, uh, will make this much easier to, especially when you have a large gathering, to screen everybody. Kathy and Mar Vista says, my husband and I have both worked in healthcare for 40 years. We're retired now. The consensus among our colleagues is that we never stay the course and always open up too soon. Looks like we're doing that again. We're wondering about the doctor's opinion on this yo-yo strategy and whether we should keep these mitigation strategies around longer. Um, I have some strong thoughts on that, but I'll, I defer to your expertise, Dr. Schreider. Well, it's, it's a balance, right? It's, you know, as, a, as an infectious disease specialist, you know, obviously I want to try to do everything we possibly can to, to get rid of this thing. But you can see that even in countries where they do very uh, forceful and strong mitigation, like China, it's very hard to get to zero infections. Uh, and uh, and so in it without in the absence, especially in the absence of of not doing just really severe lockdowns and so forth, you know that has incredible economic toll. There's a lot of psychosocial toll that's going on now. People are really struggling with kind of pandemic PTSD, and so I think you do have to balance it. And I think that pandemics run two, three years sometimes. It's important that you have some way of kind of moving through that. You have to be nimble. You have to learn how to live with the virus. You have to learn. You know, maybe when things are getting really rough, getting high levels of virus that you'd lock down a little bit more, but then opening back up again. So I I share the concern that we sort of keep doing this, but we are also doing it in the the presence of wide vaccination now, uh, better testing, uh, and hopefully soon uh, the use of good antivirals, oral antivirals that for people that have early disease, we can again control their disease so they don't end up in the hospital. Well, and as as you and our other uh, health experts have said all along the way, it it really is about um, 
about managing risk and and that that is a big part of this. You know, there seemed to be a time early on where maybe we thought we could eradicate this. And that is, as you're saying, is it seems highly, highly unlikely at this point. This is going to be something endemic that we're going to have to deal with. And in fact, as we've opened up, you know, sports stadiums and uh, movie theaters and all kinds of other things, we have not seen a huge increase in cases, even with bringing, you know, tens of thousands of people together for events. So it seems like we're learning something along the way, particularly as more people are getting vaccinated. Yeah, and I think I think the last thing is really the, the main the main thing that's controlling the this pandemic, Larry. It, you know, there's obviously natural immunity is occurring as more and more people get COVID. But the, the power of the vaccinations is really very obvious when you look at the fact that we haven't had an enormous surge like we did last winter. I don't think, I think we will have a surge this winter, but I don't think it will be on the scale of last year. Um, and, uh, and that's hopefully as long as a really nasty variant doesn't emerge. But that also is something we have to pay attention to, that the more areas where there's viral replication around the world, not just in our own country, uh, that allows the emergence of perhaps nastier, uh, more resistant variants, and that might knock down the vaccines a little bit. So we have to be super vigilant. Well, and, and yeah, if we, if we had something like what happened last year, what that would say about the effectiveness of the vaccines, would that would be deeply concerning, wouldn't it? It would be, but I don't think it's going to happen because we've already seen the power of the vaccines in this last surge uh, where, you know, and that was, you know, where was fairly low levels of vaccination. Um, and you can you could see it across the country in, in states like California, which has a very high rate of vaccination. We didn't experience the, the kind of horror, if you will, of the southeast where they had very low vaccination rates. And that's that's just all related to the number of people who got shots in arms. And so I think that that's, that really has already been a test of the power of the vaccines. But going forward, as we move get, you know, farther and farther away from, uh, from doses, then that is going to be the test. The longevity of these vaccines is still not known. In case you just joined us and uh, you're sort of kicking yourself that you missed the beginning of our conversation with Dr. Schreiner, don't despair because COVID in L.A. is here. It's our new podcast, which takes the entirety of our daily air talk conversations with our medical expert and makes it available wherever you get your podcast. And in fact, you can subscribe to it and then it's right there for you each and every day. You can also listen, of course, at kpcc.org. But COVID in L.A., the podcast, makes it easy for you to get the self-contained COVID-19 daily update from our guests like Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Uh, Christy in Manhattan Beach, good to have you with us. Your question for Dr. Schreiner, please. Hi, um, I have two sons. They're six and eight, and we're so excited to get them vaccinated. Um, We're not worried about myocarditis, but uh, on the off chance that it happens, what are we looking out for and what should we do about it? Is it something we just watch or we take them to the doctor, the hospital, or what? Good question, Christy. Uh, so myocarditis it can be very mild. Sometimes it's just a little bit of chest discomfort. Uh, sometimes it can be a, a, an extra heart, a fast heart rate. Uh, and and it, it's not uncommon to have some sort of little reactions like that after the vaccinations. But uh, But true myocarditis, severe myocarditis, uh, children might have a lot of chest discomfort. Uh, they may have a low-grade fever. Uh, they may have some shortness of breath. And those sort of symptoms would be things that would warrant a visit to the pediatrician. So, um, But for the most part, even people that experience a little bit of myocarditis after the vaccination, 
uh, it's it's self-limited and goes away. So uh, just severe symptoms, shortness of breath, severe chest pain, fever, uh, very uh, persisting palpitations, those would be things that would warrant a visit to the doctor. Wren in Burbank emailed us, I received the J&J shot back in March, and I would like to stay with the uh, with that technology. Will I be just as protected as I was with the first J&J um, or less? Uh, I assume he means getting a second J&J shot. So uh, the second J&J shot is effective. Um, it's about 66 to 70 percent effective. Uh, with If you get an mRNA vaccine, uh, either Pfizer or Moderna, you increase that uh, to about 83 percent and perhaps even 92 percent with uh, Moderna. So most uh, physicians are recommending if you've had the initial J&J to really seriously think about getting uh, the second uh, booster with an mRNA vaccine. This is where the mixing and matching idea is probably the most effective. Uh, J&J is a, still a very, very solid vaccine, and it provides good protection. Remember, we were expecting only 60 to 70 percent efficacy with these vaccines, and we got much higher. Uh, but because we have that ability to really, really ramp up the immunity, it might be good to think about getting an mRNA vaccine, and it's very safe. All right. Uh, we have Bernard in Long Beach who emailed us. I'm 62, got my second Pfizer shot back uh, in mid-April. I'm pretty healthy, but I'm worried about breakthrough infections. I'd like to get my booster as soon as possible. Does anything speak against it? Do I have to wait until the CDC extends its recommendation to my age group, or can I get the booster earlier? CDC uh, will probably end up opening up the Pfizer recommendation to anybody who wants it. Most pharmacies will do it. Some don't. If, uh, Bernard, if you are in a place where you um, encounter a lot of the public, uh, for example, if you're in, uh, in a grocer or you're uh, in some place where you have a lot of people coming in and you're front-facing in terms of uh, being exposed to people that might have COVID, then you can get your vaccine right now. If you're a healthcare worker, you can get va- your booster vaccine. Um, and so a lot of the pharmacies are not being super, um, uh, they're being very diligent, but they're, uh, they're, they're not tightly questioning you. At least that was my experience. You, know, you can get it. Some of the physicians will go ahead and vaccinate, especially if you have any kind of underlying immune disorder, diabetes, heart disease, anything like that, that would also warrant a booster. I think it's going to come very quickly that they'll just say anybody who wants a booster with Pfizer can get one. Moderna has already done that to a certain degree. Um, They're beginning to open that up a little bit more, and and J&J is, of course, anybody over 18. What what the pharmacy I went to, what they were they they checked very closely on when you last had your second vaccination, if it's an mRNA or um, uh, Johnson and Johnson when you got it. So the timing, the the you know the interval there, they were very uh, rigorous about that, and it seemed their computer system was actually programmed for that. Um, but but they they didn't you know uh, drill down and interview people about why they were getting it. Yeah, Eight, that's right, Larry. It should be six months from your last, your second injection. So uh, yeah, an mRNA before. So and and they were they were being uh, you know very fastidious about that. Eight six six eight nine three KPCC, or you can email us, including your location and first name, at atcommentskpcc.org. Eric in Highland Park says, my wife tested positive for COVID on Saturday. She's fully vaccinated and only slightly sick. My son and I tested negative today, but we were wondering if you have any advice on proper quarantine procedures, especially since we live in a small condo. 
Yes, so uh, the person who has COVID, uh, your wife, uh, should uh, quarantine uh, for at least uh, seven to ten days. I, I, you know, if they're not symptomatic, then after that, that's perfectly fine to kind of, kind of out of quarantine. Uh, for individuals who are fully vaccinated who have been exposed, they don't really have to be in quarantine, but you shouldn't be around the person with COVID. So in a small home, that's a little tricky. Uh, but it would be best if she's uh, isolated at least for the first seven days or so. Uh, she can be retested if you want to to see if she's cleared the infection faster, which is often the case in vaccinated people. Uh, but um, we do recommend that uh, that you that she be quarantined. You don't necessarily need to be in quarantine, but you need to be very careful about uh, that you're not becoming symptomatic and then spreading it to other people. So in a case like this, would you recommend that she stay, you know, in, in a bedroom of the of the condo and really uh, not move around the rest of the condo? That's right, Larry. Yeah, for a small area. Now, if you're everybody's in the house all together all the time, that sort of changes the matrix a little bit. And in those situations, then I would certainly recommend for uh, the rest of the family, the other two members, to probably go ahead and, and do a modified quarantine of five to seven days and then get retested. All right. 866-893-KPECC. Richard in Pomona, I was fully vaccinated. My second dose of Pfizer was back in early March uh, of 2020. I contracted COVID in the middle of August, but symptoms were mild. Is my immune response at a particularly elevated level because I was both fully vaccinated with two doses of Pfizer and contracted COVID. Yes, you probably have a pretty robust immune reaction uh, with uh, having been vaccinated and then getting COVID. Um, And so you should have a pretty good protection. It's sort of like getting a booster shot, if you will. We don't recommend that that modality, but but it happens, obviously. Um, You know, there's probably still some reasons to go ahead and pursue a booster vaccine, especially if you're in a high-risk occupation or elderly or immunocompromised. Uh, certainly if you're immunocompromised. Um, And so uh, those individuals should, even though they've had infection and been vaccinated, should probably get a booster as well. But you probably do have substantial immunity from having gotten the milder version of the disease. This kind of uh, related, we we get a a question like this every day. Cameron in Mission Viejo emailing us, I have friends that were previously infected with COVID who now don't want to be vaccinated because they believe their natural immunity is sufficient and they don't want to risk any adverse reaction, even though they understand the risk uh, from the vaccination for that is small. Is natural immunity lasting and effective? How does it compare to vaccinated immunity? So it's, a, it's kind of a work in progress. We want to be um, open-minded about this. Natural infection, traditionally in diseases, confers a lot of immunity. COVID seems to be an exception to that because we certainly had seen, even when before the vaccines were de- deployed, uh, quite a few individuals who had had pretty robust cases of COVID and then got it again. And, uh, and so that's been the concern that natural immunity for this particular virus may not be as good. And in fact, the data shows that there seems to be a decline in neutralizing antibodies in natural infection faster than there is in the setting of good, uh, complete vaccination. And so that's why the CDC recommends that people that have had natural infection uh, get vaccinated um, because it's better protection. Um, it may also be more robust in the presence of variants uh, where we see more people getting COVID again with things like Delta. So I, I still strongly encourage people who've had natural infection to get vaccinated. 
Uh, Lauren in Echo Park emailed us, I've heard a lot about the benefit of boosting with an mRNA vaccine if you received a viral vector vax such as J&J. But would you recommend someone fully vaccinated with Pfizer get boosted with Moderna given the extended immunity provided by Moderna? So this is the, the sort of the complexity of boosting, and we're really still gathering a lot of that data. There's no question that the the juice in Moderna seems to be a little bit more potent. Um, and uh, in fact, actually, there's been some call that perhaps maybe they need to back off on their original dosing levels uh, because people do have pretty strong reactions to the Moderna vaccine. Um, so there might be a slight advantage if you've had Pfizer to boost with Moderna going from perhaps 93% to maybe 96% efficacy. But when you're getting up into those levels, it's sort of like the difference between a, you know, a, a Cadillac and a Rolls Royce or something. It's not, it, there's not, a, maybe I'm speaking for people that are <laughs> Cadillac, <laughs> a whole lot of difference there. I'm not a car person, so perhaps that wasn't the best analogy. But my point is, is that it's, it's such a high level of efficacy for both that you probably don't really gain anything by doing Moderna. You can do it. It appears to be safe. Uh, again, that dose would be 50% of the usual dose of Moderna, uh, but whether that really confers a huge advantage is not clear yet, and I don't think it's going to pan out. Well, I think of in polls, you have a margin of error also where, you know, these are not in, if you were to run the same uh, clinical trial again, you'd probably come up with some slight differences the second time because, you know, the timing of things and circumstances change. So, you know, what you're saying is sort of, you know, don't take these numbers to the bank like this This is a real-world forever-after performance. That's right, yeah. And I think the, these vaccines are performing really, really well. And so sort of however you mix them up, yeah. uh, they don't, it appears to be very effective. Uh, let's see. We uh, have uh, Melanie in Rancho Santa Margarita emailed us, my daughter's 11, counting the days until she can be vaccinated. Uh, the problem is she's 5'4", 135 pounds, uh, so size of an adult. Since kid vaccine doses are a third that of the 12-plus crowd, is it better to wait four months until she turns 12, can get the stronger dose, or should I let her get it now? One of the things we were talking with Dr. Dean Blumberg, a pediatric infectious disease specialist, last week, Dr. Schreiner, and he was saying, you know, it's it's important for people to keep in mind that this is not a a weight-dependent issue or size-dependent issue, as it is with medication. This has to do with the robustness of a child's immune response versus someone who's older. So can you elaborate a bit as to whether this matters in terms of the size of dose for her on the cusp 11 turning 12 daughter? Well, Dr. Blumberg is absolutely right. Uh, vaccines are based on age, not on um, on weight. And so, and again, it, it speaks to the maturity of the immune system. And, you know, there's this sort of transition that occurs when kids go from kind of young children to adolescence. Um, and so that's a little bit of a finesse that you have to do. But uh, for the most part, if the kid's 12, uh, you know, give them the full dose. If they're 11, give them the half dose or the third dose, excuse me, for Pfizer, and, and, uh, and it will be fine. And I don't think I would wait um, because if, you know, hopefully not, but if, if someone acquired COVID during that time period, you'd be really kicking yourself that you didn't get the vaccine. So there's not a lot of uh, difficulty in terms of the uh, side effects and so forth. 
and it does appear that the vaccines are very robust. So I would just, if the child's 11, get they get the pediatric dose. When they turn 12, they get the full adult dose. Daniel and Van Nuys says, with the technology we have today, why does this vaccine need a booster? Why, why doesn't it provide longer or even lifelong immunity like some other vaccines? Does the mRNA technology play into this? That's an excellent question, Daniel, and it's complicated. It has a lot to do with this virus and the virulence of this virus. Uh, and what we were seeing clinically uh, was that as people got farther away from their second shot, we were beginning to see, to our horror, uh, as we remember back in July, that vaccinated people were getting infected. They weren't nearly as sick, of course, but they were getting infected. A lot of studies out of Israel, which is sort of ahead of most everybody else in the world, uh, showed that as you moved forward, even getting farther away, that sometimes then those individuals were becoming sicker. And so um, the virus is very, very nasty, and it's a very strong virus. It does a lot of complex things to the immune system. And so that's why we think that uh, probably a series of vaccinations is better. And again, as I've said before on on many different shows for Larry, is that uh, that's common in vaccines to give three shots. Uh, We do that for hepatitis B. We do that for rabies. Uh, So for really nasty viruses, sometimes you need to have that sort of third shot to really uh, embed the memory into the immune system so that you get a good response if you encounter the real virus. Next hour, we kick off our week-long series on the climate crisis pegged to the U.N. uh, Global Warming uh, Climate Summit that's taking place in Glasgow. And um, Dr. Schreiner is an infectious disease specialist. What can you tell us about the projected effects of, of a warmer climate and you know, accompanying perhaps shortages in water, uh, things like that, how that's going to infect global uh, disease. Well, climate change is very impactful on infectious disease, and that's something we've been very concerned about. And frankly, we're experiencing that right now. Uh, We certainly know that as temperatures warm up, uh, that allows wider spread of uh, nastier mosquitoes that can transmit disease. We've seen that with the very rapid spread of West Nile virus across the United States, even into colder climates. In Africa, we're seeing malaria up in high elevation areas that where it didn't occur before because the mosquitoes are up there transmitting the disease. The emergence of Zika and chikungunya virus, all of these vector-borne diseases where climate change, even on a local level, can really impact the movement of insects that carry disease. And, you know, malaria is a very, very serious global disease. But it also can impact other types of things. Destruction of the environment uh, allows the encounter of humans with animal viruses. We've seen that with the uh, emergence of Ebola in West Africa and Central Africa. Uh, And to a certain degree, this virus, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2, is a function of that. Um, This is a zoonotic infection. It comes from bats, uh, whether it was acquired naturally or whether it had some sort of uh, emergence in, in a laboratory situation, an accident of some sort. It's not really clear. It probably could even be both. But the bottom line is is that when you destroy environments and you destroy animals' natural habitats, they move into areas where they will encounter humans and can transmit disease. And then finally, water shortages, when you have pools of water that are stagnant, that they're not being refreshed by clean water, that allows the emergence of waterborne diseases, diarrheal illnesses, cholera, things like that. Uh, And so infectious diseases are often the final result, if you will, of severe climate related catastrophes. We're seeing that in Madagascar, where there's a famine now. Uh, A lot of cholera and infectious diseases emerge. So it's a very, very important part 
of understanding the perils of our warming planet. Dr. Schreiner, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, important to set up for our conversation throughout the course of the week, the many ways in which this will be affecting us locally and, and around the world. Thank you, as always. I sure look forward to talking with you next week. It's always my pleasure, Larry. Wonderful show. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.